is Ella Kate Marisi, and you are listening to More Than Child's Play with your host, my mommy, Lacey Marisi, and my Aunt Nicole Surgeon. They're authors, therapists, and most importantly, mommies. And man, can they talk. So sit back and relax and learn from their village. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to More Than Child's Play podcast. This is Lacey Marisi, co-owner of Milestones and Miracles and early intervention speech language pathologist. Um, I am flying solo today. Nicole couldn't join me, but she is here in spirit as she is just as excited about our guest today as I am. And we'll be listening along with all of you later on. So I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to Tabby Jones Wallaber. Yay! Thanks, Tabby, for joining us. I'm excited to be here. Great. So I just want to um, kind of get our audience familiar with you, Tabby and let them know your background. And then we're gonna jump into our discussion on everything AAC today. So Tabby is um, an SLP, speech language pathologist, and she is on the assistive technology team for Frederick County Public Schools in the state of Maryland. She also works with families um, through the West Virginia Birth to Three system, which is also the early intervention system that Nicole and I work for. So that is how we have um, met Tabby is through our work um, in the state of West Virginia. Tabby supports students with a variety of assistive technology needs, but most of her time and creative energy is devoted to supporting the communication and learning needs of students with significant disabilities. Tabby is a contributor to the Practical AAC blog and she created the widely shared model as a master pal training series. Tabby has worked with Angelman Syndrome family organizations in multiple countries and presents on AAC related topics at local, state, national, and international conferences. So I had the pleasure of meeting Tabby um, probably about three years ago when our paths crossed because of a mutual friend as Tabby was getting started again in, in the Birth to Three system where Nicole and I currently work also. And I knew from the get-go, Tabby, you had so much knowledge um, about the field of AAC and I needed to take advantage of that. So just even after that first conversation we had, I felt like I learned so much from you. And, and since then, I've had the pleasure of working alongside of you, alongside of you on a, a team with a particular child that we all uh, share and just, you know, texting you for with questions all the time. You're always so generous with helping me out. And I just wanted I to say the able, same with you. Yeah. Yeah. We work well together, but um, I just wanted to be able to share uh, with our audience, some of that knowledge that you have, um, especially about the field of AAC, which, which really is widely um, misunderstood by the greater public, I would say. And we've discussed before, even some SLPs, you know, who maybe didn't get the training um, through their coursework in college or graduate school, um, they just aren't, you know, as knowledgeable about this, this area of our field. And um, I always feel like, you know, we learn for a lifetime. And so I'm just so thankful that you could join us and, and we could have this conversation and, and share that wisdom that you have with our audience. Well, thank you for inviting me. Of course. Okay, so let's just get right to it. So Tabby, what does AAC stand for? Um, AAC is an acronym that stands for Augmentative and Alternative Communication. And it's really important to kind of note both of the A's in that, that it's augmentative for kids who have other communication modalities, whether it be sign or speech or, um, you know, other, other ways of, of engaging. But um, it, it can also be an alternative means of communication for kids who are not going to develop um, a verbal speech that's going to be functional for them for um, a variety of purposes and across their lifespan. Okay. And... Um... You mentioned, so, you know, again, a, a myth I feel like is that, let me back up. So I'm going to date myself. When I was in graduate school, I distinctly remember 
we had to choose an elective class. And the choice that I was making was between an AAC class and an adult dysphagia class. And I chose to take the adult dysphagia class. <laughs> so <laughs> that just goes to show you, I don't even remember in my coursework having a dedicated class. Now I graduated, you know, with my master's in 2001. So that's been 20 years ago and I haven't looked to see, but my thought is, and my hope is that the coursework for graduate school for speech language pathology has changed since, since, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but yeah, it just wasn't, you know, we just didn't implement AAC. We didn't learn about it as much, you know, why, why do you think that was all those years? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, the advent of mobile technology has really had a real, has, a, has had a big impact on the availability of AAC and the way that we've been able to implement and, um, you know, provide AAC in a robust way for, you know, so many more people because mobile technology is so accessible. But it's true that AAC is, um, has always been a little, you know, it hasn't been SLPs. There's so many things that fall under the umbrella of an SLP. Mm-hmm. So it is one of those areas that um, hasn't always gotten a lot of attention. I think, um, you know, I can't exactly speak to the state of, of pre-service programs at the moment. Um, you know, it's not something I've looked into it in depth, but I know that for it, at a, there was a time when it wasn't, the um, elements of, of AAC were addressed um, in pre-service programs, but not necessarily as a class, but kind of as a tick box, you know, you had to make sure you covered it across your classes. Um, there, there's definitely an awareness that, that more is needed and there's a lot of movement um, in the field towards providing, you know, um, SLPs, you know, in training the information that they need in order to um, effectively service those who use AAC. But I think for so many of us, it's been on the job training um, or it's been that elective where we have chosen it in our class, in our, in our yes, coursework. Yes. Um, right. I, I was lucky because I, I knew from the get go before I even, you know, took my first SLP class that I wanted to specialize in AAC. So I sought that out. Um, but it is definitely not something um, that necessarily comes to us naturally through our learning process. And, and we do need to seek out. Right. The knowledge about AAC. So, so, you know, coming from that place, um, there's, there's lots of myths that exist about AAC, um, not only in the speech and language community, but in, in the, the greater, you know, community, the society as a whole. And, um, Recently, I was able to attend a continuing education course that Tabby provided, and she spoke about some of these myths. So Tabby, I just want you to, I know there's a lot of myths that are out there, but, <laughs> but let's just share with the audience and debunk, some, you know, maybe the top three, four, five myths, so that then our audience is aware that, that these mistruths are out there and they can um, help advocate alongside mm-hmm. us. Sure. I think that's a great place to start. Um, one, one really common myth with AAC is that AAC will interfere with the development of speech. And um, so that is a myth. That is a lot of children or individuals who um, have some verbal speech or are going to develop some verbal speech. When you put a concrete representation of language in front of them and you provide them this pattern-based structure in order to um, access and organize language, it actually can elicit speech production. Um, there's a lot of research to back this up that's available out there that just sort of um, lays out the idea that it that when kids have multiple modalities to express themselves, not just kids, but individuals in general, um, they'll use what's, you know, what's most effective and what's most efficient and speech is the most efficient. So if they're going to develop speech and if they're going to be, um, if speak speech is, you know, a modality that's going to work in a given situation with a given communication partner, that's what kids are going to use. And that AAC can help to um, to facilitate that um, in kids who are going to demonstrate those skills, but it doesn't get in the way. Right. And I think that is um, definitely a hesitancy, a fear when I bring up AAC to parents and, and AAC, everyone includes sign language. And I feel like sign language is talked about a little bit more um, parents, probably families might not realize it's, it's a form of AAC, but um, even bringing up sign language or using picture communication, parents are worried that their child then won't talk or 
almost become lazy and not want to talk because they've got this extra support. But I just similar, similarly to how you just explained it, I'll say to parents, you know, all of us innately are born to talk. We want to talk. That's the easiest way to communicate. It's how we see most everyone around us communicating. And as soon as your child is able to say those words, they'll stop doing that sign or they won't need that picture support anymore. But it is a hard sell in the beginning to, <laughs> get, yeah, to get families yeah. on board. But, you know, the, the, the more I actually talk to you about it, Tabby, the more confident I am becoming in um, being able to effectively explain, you know, that process to parents and that it is supported by lots of research out there, you know, that that providing these visual supports or the gestural supports or whatever it may be, whatever type of AAC does elicit, you know, that, that spoken word sooner. Um, I think it's important too to recognize that if a child's not speaking, it's because it's hard. They're not, you know, so, I mean, there's cases of, you know, some selective mutism, but generally if kids aren't talking, it's not because they don't want to, um, or it's because it's hard for them. So when we give them another way, it makes it a little easier and it can start to create that scaffold, that bridge that they may need. Um, The other piece of it is that many, you know, when you look at the community of adult AAC users, um, they will share their perspectives and, and say things like, I'm verbal around these people or in these situations, but when my anxiety is high or when I'm in a new situation or, um, you know, when I need to, be, when I need to um, really kind of have, show my competence, then um, that's when AAC becomes a real asset. So there's, mm-hmm. there's always this, when we look long-term, you know, we, we're in early intervention, so we don't always think that long-term, but it's really building the foundation for um, creating a toolkit for individuals, you know, depending on their disability and how, how their development evolves. Right. to be a long-term effective communicator and maybe a part-time AAC user and maybe a part-time speaker, or maybe they grow out of it entirely. We don't have crystal balls, so we can't really, we can't really say. Right, exactly. But it's important to offer that AAC as an option for communication as early as we possibly can. Yes. To support. Okay, so what's, what's myth number two that we're going to debunk? Um, let's see, myth number two is probably that a child needs to demonstrate prerequisite skills to benefit from AAC. Oh, I remember hearing <laughs> this in our field. <laughs> yeah. Along the so way. There's um, a lot of times when kids go in for an AAC assessment, you know, there's some, um, there's conversations about, um, well, can he discriminate the pictures or, you know, does he, um, you know, is it meaningful or is it intentional? And the fact of the matter is it doesn't really matter <laughs> because yep. kids learn to communicate by observing, watching, and being immersed in communication around them. So just like, you know, you learn a foreign language when you live in a foreign country because you're immersed in it. Kids learn the language of, they they learn symbolic language, whether it's words or symbols, um, through exposure and immersion. So a child may not be able to differentiate symbols, but when have they ever been shown those symbols? You know, or whenever they, why is that task meaningful? Um, So, the idea here is that we want to expose kids to a language system that they can access. So if they're going to acquire verbal speech and we're really providing a lot of verbal input and we're using strategies to elicit verbalizations, then that is how they're going to, that's a system they can access. You know, that's kind of um, natural, typical language development. But if a child isn't developing expressive language and we provide, we provide an AAC system and it's really, um, upon it's really on the um falls on the communication partner to to use the system to use the symbols to use the buttons or whatever whatever the tool is to show them how so kids don't have to know how to use AAC because communication partners are going to show them and that is that is perfectly in line with typical language develop with language development in general you know we use language development as our guide when teaching AAC um, and just as we don't expect kids to talk as soon as they're born, <laughs> right. expect an AAC user to know how to use their AAC or um, engage with AAC before they're shown how. So it's not really about kids having prerequisite skills. We're not going to test them on something we haven't taught them. We have to teach them and show them and make it meaningful and motivating and fun and engaging and like full of that rich emotional connection um, in order to make it something that they see as valuable enough to learn and own for themselves. 
Right. And um, what about the real photo versus symbolic, you know, photo drawing, cartoon looking? I mean, is one <laughs> preferred over the other? Should we introduce one over the other? Um, no, really the, the um, you know, what we understand about symbols, it, I mean, it was widely held that symbols are learned in a hierarchy. And I can actually remember in grad school creating a symbol kit <laughs> where um, I had about 15 items and I had a representation, everything from the real object to right down to the, the line drawings and words and everything in between. Um, but what we know about is that kids learn symbols in context. So when they see us use the word go and we're, you know, we say it to go outside and we say it to make the car go and we say it, you know, to get in the car to go, then they learn, oh, that means go. Um, they learn it because of the location on the system. They learn it because of, you know, the symbol. They start to associate it. Um, they learn it because of when it's used and how it's used and the reinforcement they get around its use. Um, and some really obvious ways to recognize that kids use symbol, you know, they learn symbols in context is symbols that are in our everyday environment. So kids know that the golden arches is where they can get a hamburger and french fries. But yes. there's nothing about that symbol yes. <laughs> that tells them that that's what happens there. Um, another one that I think is really current is the YouTube symbol. The kids can, like, they know the icons on a device and they can navigate to them and scan and, you know, scroll pages and, um, and choose it. But then once they get into the app, they know how to make it play because they know what the symbol for play is um, because they've learned it in context. Yes. Yes. Those are some really good real life examples, things that most toddlers learn very young, you know, what yeah. those, what those, you know, what that little symbol on the screen means, or like you said, the golden arches or, or even, you know, cartoon faces, you know, they know that that's my favorite show. They can't read Daniel Tiger, but they know that that cartoon face is what they want to watch. So they'll point to it or gesture in some way and let us know. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example. Um, yeah. Symbols are Symbols are, there's, there's different, the other thing about symbols is that when you give kids, you know, some variations on symbols, they learn to generalize. Um, so, you know, it's really not necessary. The, the other thing about photos to note is that photos actually have a lot of complexity to them. Mm -hmm. So there's two things. One is if you have a child who has, um, you know, a, a vision issue, whether it's CVI or, um, you know, more of a acuity issue, symbol or photos, there's a lot of complexity. It captures all the details. So that can make it more difficult to access for some kids. You know, there's there's definitely uniquenesses there. Um, but the other thing is photos can be really specific. So if you have a picture of a child's cup, then they may not understand that there are other things that are also called a cup other than that one thing, because they think that that means cup because it's very specific. Right. So when we start to incorporate things like line drawings, um, then we help kids to develop those generalization skills. And again, context becomes most important. Um, the yeah. other thing about, sim about things like line drawings is that they are so much more accessible. So, you know, we have our board maker and our symbol sticks and our lesson picks and all of our symbol sets, and we can go on the computer and type in the search word and get it. Um, and it, it, it can carry a variety of meanings, whereas photos can only mean that one thing. Um, but these you know, these symbol sets become much more accessible to create communication um, with a lot more variety in the language. And, you know, like you can't represent the word, um, the word on with a picture very well, you know, because it's right. much more conceptual. But a symbol, like it's easier to sort of make the conveyance that this is a symbolic representation of meaning as opposed to that very specific um, right. specificity that comes through with photos. Right. Okay. So what would be myth number three that, that you would list in the top three here? Um, I think with myth number three, maybe that AAC is a last resort intervention. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually think that this really kind of ties into the first two myths, but this idea that we have to try everything else before we try AAC. Um, I really like to think of AAC as being part of my toolkit. So if I have a kiddo who is, you know, struggling with with expressive language, like we're going to, I'm going to talk to the family about like, you know, what kind of language input is happening in the environment and how can we kind of give kids multi-sensory input and tap things out so they get lots of ways to experience 
language. Um, but then I consider AAC part of my toolkit too. So I might bring out a core board and, and say like, let's talk about the language we're using to shape um, the language input in this environment. And what it often does is it creates a pause where the child is curious, like, let me see what that is. And they look at it and they engage with it. And honestly, like it doesn't necessarily have to be, it's, it shouldn't really be the centerpiece of an interaction, but it's just a way to create another layer of language input where the family can point to symbols and slow down the interaction and create some segmentation and pausing between words. Um, it, um, you know, and some kids really become eager to engage with it and they might verbalize, um, you know, or not. Um, but there's no reason to like rule out that the child's never, not gonna be a speaker in order to introduce AAC, because if a child's gonna need AAC long-term, we should get, we should get started as early as possible. Um, and again, we don't have a crystal ball, so we can't predict the future. But even when we have kids who are pretty sure that, you know, this kid, you know, they, they need a little push, but like they're definitely showing signs that their, their speech is developing, you know, even then, again, it can be a toolbox, a tool in our toolkit um, to sort of get things, you know, moving in different directions um, to help those families. Right. And I think, I, I think it was in a conversation with you um, and talking about introducing AAC, you said that, you know, words, we say words and then they're gone. If we oh. support and back those words up with a, a picture or, you know, a, a symbol representation, um, then that language is concrete. It, you know, it's not gone. It's there on that, on that board, that picture board that we have, and the child can access it if they're not able, if they're not ready yet to imitate words after us, they still have a way to access that vocabulary and communicate with us in the moment, which then is, you know, critical to reduce that frustration if they're, you know, not as communicative as, as they'd like to be. So I thought that was a good way to explain it to parents too. I think um, so too. Yeah. yeah. How words just kind of come out of our mouth and then float away on a cloud. Yes. <laughs> it yeah. Was, <laughs> so, but yeah, I, you know, I, I want to remember that for when I have conversations with families about the importance of introducing picture support and other, you know, methods of AAC to support verbal language emergence. So, yeah. and I think so many of our kiddos who are, um, who are receiving EI services, they, you know, they, there can often be a processing component in, you know, whatever it is that they're develop, you know, however their developmental delay may be characterized. And so I do think that when you have a concrete representation of this very transient, you know, <laughs> yeah. speech just floating away on a cloud, yeah. I think it really resonate with families like, oh, because they can see that processing piece in other ways. Yeah. Um, when you kind of bring it home, be like, this is really, it's right there. You can touch it and you can feel it and you can point to it and look at it and revisit it. Right. Um, it helps to really uh, provide that clarity. Right. Right. So, okay. So let's back up just a little bit. You, you mentioned a core board. So for our audience that aren't familiar or for, for the, you know, people out there that they aren't familiar with what a core board is, or even what core vocabulary means, could you just explain that concept to them and, and what that means in the world of AAC? Sure. Um, so a lot of times in the in AAC, what we often see is boards that have a lot of choices. So that, you know, a choice board, a choice board, you know, whether it's food choices or toy choices or, or whatever it may be. Um, but there's really an emphasis in the AAC community on core vocabulary. And core vocabulary are actually all of the glue words that stick those nouns together and allow us to talk about them. The core words are actually, if you do kind of a language sample and you dissect, you know, some speech, you'll notice that core words actually make up about 80% of what we say. Um, and these words have multiple meanings. They're used across contexts. Um, and they, they tend to be the foundation, like the homepage of, of, of those of well-developed robust AAC systems. But these words are specifically um, like our frequently used verbs, things like go, look, help, stop, do, get, want, put, eat, you know, those kinds of words. Um, it, is, it also includes adjectives. So we're looking at things like good and bad, fast and slow, big and small, color words, things like fun or funny. So those words that we use to describe the world around us. Um, it also includes pronouns. So I, me, he, she, they, um, those kinds of words. It includes negation. So we will always want kids to have a way to say no, don't, you know, 
um, that's really important for them to be able to advocate. And then it also includes question words. So being able to um, get information about your environment, what and where and who, those kinds of things. Um, so when we combine these words, what happens is, is kids' first words are often nouns. You know, it's their ball or their doll or their mom or their cup or their milk. Um, and then also words like go and up. But generally, first words are words that give kids a huge amount of power <laughs> to get what they want. And what happens is we as communication partners give it back to them. We repeat what they say, but we also extend it. So when we say it back, like if, if the word is mama, like, oh, you want to go with mama. So you want go. Those are all core words. Or where they say cup. We say, oh, let me get your cup. So let me get, those are all core words. So we give kids core words in addition to their, their, their first words, those big power words in their language. Um, so when we're introducing AAC, what we know is that kids, you know, AAC is all about the real estate, how many squares on a page, how many pages to navigate, whether low tech or high tech. We want kids to have access to as much power in their language as possible. So we give them core words so they can say go and go can refer to go out, go to the bathroom, go away, make the truck go. And that one word has so many, so much relevance in different contexts. The child's playing with their car and they say go, we know it means go, make the car go. If they say go as they're walking to the door, we know they want to go out. So they don't have to learn as many words initially to, in order to say a lot in a lot of different places. So core words are, you know, a foundational part of any well-developed AAC system. And a lot of times we will start with a core board. So it is a board of words that has lots of core, core vocabulary. Um, and oftentimes there might be space for fringe kind of on the side if we're just introducing some low tech in a, in, you know, in an environment. Um, but yeah, so Core words are kind of all over the place in the AAC, um, you know, when we're talking about AAC, because they really help to bring language together and not just give, give kids things to label and request, but to actually talk about, to, to request and to advocate, I don't want that, and to describe and to comment, um, which is, is so much more interesting and it adds so much to the interaction. Yes, and I was just going to say, you touched on it there at the end, those core words are what allow children to communicate with all those different purposes. You know, just labeling uh -huh. nouns or just using noun words to request, that's not enough. You know, I'll talk to families for kiddos who are verbal, you know, I'll say, okay, let's let's do a word inventory, write down everything he says in the next couple of weeks. And then we take a look at that. And if he's only saying nouns, then we better start modeling more verbs and prepositions because <laughs> yes. he's not gonna be able to make any type of phrase with just a list of nouns. So the same extends when we're talking about AAC, you need those power words, those core words of verbs and pronouns and prepositions and adjectives to be able to comment, request, label, question, protest, all the <laughs> communicative functions require an expansion of vocabulary and those power words that you just mentioned. So that it is really important. And you yeah. just, oh, you said fringe words and fringe words just means nouns, correct? When you talk about um, words. Yeah, fringe words is gonna be nouns or like more sophisticated verbs and adjectives that aren't gonna be commonly used. Okay as much. Okay. And, and so you, you mentioned too, just a few minutes ago, low tech versus high tech AAC. Can you just explain that quickly? Sure. Um, so what, another way to think about low tech is paper-based. So anything that, you know, you can print off and laminate, you know, maybe bind together in a book or, or something, a binder. And then high tech is going to be something that's technology-based. And high tech, there's a really wide range. It's everything from um, a device that has voice output that you put batteries in the back <laughs> and is you know, designed for, um, you know, you press the button and, you know, you record the message yourself and, and that's what speaks back um, all the way through um, mobile devices. So iPads, there's a lot of options for communication apps on iPads. And then at the upper end of the range is um, dedicated devices. And these are devices that are developed um, for the sole purpose of being a communication tool. And the companies that develop them really um, have really impressive R&D departments that develop you know, um, sophisticated languages. And they, they put a lot of focus on alternative access for kids with complex bodies. 
or individuals with complex bodies. So there's a huge range of AAC tools. Um, I would say that it's important to consider that an AAC system really includes all of the ways that an individual communicates. So it's all of their nonverbal communication. So how do they use their body language and their facial expressions and any gestures or signs they might have, as well as any verbalizations or vocalizations, um, as well as whatever tools. So a lot of individuals will have a primary tool that will be technology-based, um, but then you'll wanna have a backup of that tool or the pool or the bathtub or sand play or the car, <laughs> um, depending on you know if mounting is an issue. So um, the low-tech or paper-based tools have a place, I think, in every AAC system. Oftentimes it's what we get started with. It's not necessary that we get started with, with paper-based AAC, but it's often the most accessible. So it does become sort of a default starting place. Um, but yeah, that, that's just, um, you know, just kind of a, the spectrum of AAC tools, there's a lot to consider. Um, but low-tech AAC or paper-based AAC, I, um, I think is important for us to, again, keep it in our toolkit because um, there's no reason to not introduce it. <laughs> right, to support any child's development of language and communication, like we talked earlier. Yeah. Um, it was like my kids, um, you know, because they're my kids, we have paper-based communication displays that are coming off my printer that don't print right, or, you know, I printed too many. So it's kind of a thing around here. And my kids, you know, when they were, they love playing with them. They loved, you know, taking them upstairs and putting them on the coffee table and using them to comment and talk to one another. Wow. So kids do enjoy paper-based communication tools. <laughs> right. And can learn it pretty quickly. Like you said, with that model and exposure to it, you know, they can learn any language system with the, with the, you know, correct amount of exposure and introducing it early yeah. well, anytime, but yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Good. <laughs> um, so, so assuming we have some, some other early intervention um, SLPs out in the audience listening, tell me, Tabby, is there a particular profile of a child that I'm going to introduce AAC to what's that kid look like? Do they have to be at a certain level? Do they have to meet certain criteria? Explain to me when, as an EISLP, when is a good time for me to bring up AAC to the family and possibly trial or introduce it to them? That is such a good question. <laughs> um, again, I kind of always go back to this idea that it's part of my toolkit. So Typically, if I have a kiddo that has a language, expressive language delay, I'm going to talk to the family about, you know, a host of strategies. And, and I will often use a core board as part of one of my strategies. Now, I will say that oftentimes what happens is this becomes a tool that facilitates conversation between myself and the parent about the language input they're providing. If they're asking the child, what's this? What's that? What color? And there's a lot of questioning. Um, I'm going to use the core board as a way to help the family show all the ways that they can talk about an activity and avoid the bottom, the question words across the bottom um, so that they can under, so that they can sort of uh, increase their understanding of the fact that talking about, um, you know, if you're talking about blocks, like it goes up, put it on. Um, I like it. It is tall. Those are all ways to talk about it without asking a lot of questions. And then you can put a question or two in there after you've given the child a lot of input. So I, I, I think that um, it, it serves a beneficial role as like a teaching tool for, for some families. And then it's something that stays in their environment as a reminder. And um, it's something that they can use when they're interacting with their kids. And, and kids of course have the opportunity to come over and take their turn. And it becomes a way of having a shared language in that environment. Um, so that's one way that I think a core board is beneficial, like in a play situation, um, because it just becomes another way of, of engaging in the environment, but it doesn't diminish any of the other strategies that are being introduced. Um, I also find that these families are really open and often asking for a top for a choice board related to like food items, you know, he points to the pantry, but I just don't know what he wants. I think the fact of the matter is a lot of kids are really good at telling us what they want, but we just want to hear it out of their mouth. We want them to be specific. So I will, I will absolutely provide a choice for it, but I will usually pair the, those choices like on a strip with, a, with um, a topic. I'll make it part of a topic board that has, that lets them show again, all the ways that they can communicate. Um, so you can say, oh, you want, I think you like it. It is yummy not that one. So I can 
um, give them examples of other ways to talk about those requests that kids are making. Um, I think that requests, you know, are often should be just one turn. We're not going to drill kids, say it again, say it again, mm -hmm. but there's always something else to say. There's always a comment to make. There's always a way to describe what it, what it tastes like or feels like, or, um, what, or, or tell about what's happening with it. So it becomes a way to extend the language around the request. Um, so I think that it's really, you know, we want to meet families where they are and give them, you know, help them to see like what the need is beyond what they might see, you know, in the immediate. So um, I think that AAC becomes a way to help create a bridge for those families, even though those kids ultimately, a lot of times we can see that they're well on the path, well on their path to developing speech. So that's kind of one way to think about it. But I think that the, the tools we're gonna to use for those kids are really limited. We're really just looking at those topic boards and, and maybe a core board for play and to facilitate some good discourse around language inputs. But for kids that have developmental delays or diagnoses or perhaps are undiagnosed, but it, it appears that you know some diagnoses may emerge. Um, and then especially kids with really complex support needs, we wanna introduce AAC to them really as quickly as possible. And if they outgrow it, that's great. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but if it becomes something that they need long term, I think um, the earlier we get started, the more benefit they're going to reap from that. So, um, you know, kids with with autism um, or um, Down syndrome or other, you know, really familiar um, disability profiles, you know, those are kids that may or may not need something like that long term. But it's not just about speech, it's really about language and language is the way that we create meaning um, and, 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 cre and establish relationships and show what we're learning. So we wanna give them access to language and AAC allows us to do that. Um, and the other thing is when we are looking um, with kids with more complex needs, we wanna start exploring um, alternative access modality. So if this is a child who may be accessing their world through eye gaze or through some sort of scanning technique, we can introduce those skills early at a very basic level. And um, because the learning curve can be a little bit steep, but if we introduce it early, then, you know, we're giving them a jump on, you know, we're, we're giving them a leg up in, in that, that access game. <laughs> um, right as you know, as their, as their skills develop. And we're always sort of um, negotiating, you know, the physical and the, the cognitive and the language and, you know, all of those skill areas. Absolutely. That's wonderful. I, I love all those um, reasons you shared timing wise, when to introduce. And I love that you use the core board. The first example you gave, you sometimes use the core board to support teaching the family how to better model language for the child. Because it's very natural, I think, for parents to become quizzers of their children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, the question after and, question after question, you know. And with the best of intentions. Like, absolutely. I fully recognize that it's just absolutely. really a bid yeah. to help their children be successful. Absolutely. And, you know, and I'll say a lot of the toys that are on the market and even books for young toddlers are centered around numbers and letters and colors. So naturally the parent Thank thinks, you. what color is this? It's red. What color? You know, so it, again, the things that we're playing with sometimes with our children kind of, you know, encourage us to interact and question and only model those types of words. So, um, I love that, you know, um, I typically will tell families if I feel like maybe they're questioning their child a little bit too much, maybe pressuring a little bit too much with all the, the, you know, the asking of questions, I'll tell them to balance that, you know, for every three comments you make only ask one question. So three to one ratio. Yeah. Um, that's a good strategy. Sometimes I'll tell them, you know, I've heard another therapist along the way say this, you know, you wouldn't want to talk either if every interaction you had was a test, felt like you were taking a test. <laughs> You would, you would be shutting down just the same as your little kiddo. So, um, but again, like you said, it's with the best of intentions and, and parents just don't even realize sometimes that that's what they're doing because they, they think it's the best way to teach their child and they want them to learn to communicate. So, you know, yeah. so I love there's, that. There's this, actually, there's this fantastic podcast that was done by the Angelman Syndrome Foundation and they did, they have a whole communication training series. If you want to know more about AAC, I highly recommend, okay. um, but there is one uh, one uh, webinar that they did called Don't Ask, Do Tell. 
And it really sort of gets into like what we what happens to an interaction when there's a lot of questioning and a lot of directed language. Right. Um, and it's just it's really enlightening. I, I learned a lot from that. But there's also a um, I did a series of communication training modules for partners of who of um, individuals who use AAC called Model of the Master Pal. And every letter in Master Pal, it's an acronym. So every letter is a different um, topic about how to be a good communication partner. And the S is statements more than questions. Um, And it really just kind of helps us to, you know, come to an understanding about how questions are absolutely a part of our interaction. Um, But when we give statements, that's where the language input comes from. um, And that testing is not always conducive to a naturalistic or balanced interaction. Right. Awesome. Good stuff. Good stuff. Just one more thing that I want to comment on about you know, when we have kids with complex support needs or kids that we're thinking, gosh, we think that they might be using AAC, long-term is, you know, I feel like sometimes in EI, we're just, we're hesitant to kind of pull the trigger, so to speak. We're hesitant to like really, okay, is this something that needs to happen? But just kind of keep in mind that if even if a child, you know, is no longer needing to use um, AAC tools you know, even by the time they get to kindergarten, we have in that time period helped to support their language development. There was yeah. a young boy that I worked with who went through um, early intervention and, and started off as a three-year-old in a pre-K program. And he his he had limited speech, limited intelligible speech. And he um, there was a little boy that sat next to him in the classroom whose family, who was also non-speaking and whose family had um, provided an iPad and he had a communication app. And this little boy was so excited about his friend's AAC and they would sit there and they would explore it together. Um, And so I came in as the AT specialist and I was like, well, let's get him one of those. (laughs) (laughs) So we, we had him, we provided him an an iPad with the same app and they sat next to each other and they were buds. But by the time he was a kindergartner, he actually, he no longer, he was no longer in special education at all. Wow. And so much of it had to do with like supporting his language. Like he really just needed a boost, but he developed verbal skills, but it was such an instrumental part of his learning Um, for so many reasons, not just the development of speech, but the way that what he was able to show he learned and his attention in the, in his pre-K classroom, like his willingness to want to be a part of it because he had a way to be a part of it. It was so important for his development in, on so, in so many levels. Um, even though he did not need it long-term. So I just um, want to encourage people like this, you don't have, you don't have to have a crystal ball. Like you don't have to know what the future holds for an individual to know that their language needs to be supported. Right. And this is a way to do that. Um, And the same with kids with complex needs. We don't have to get like the high tech system in place before they enter school. Like the family's on a journey and we're part of that journey. So I think that providing information and um, providing um, an understanding of what it is and what it can do and helping them start to explore their options. There's a lot of value in that, even if we don't feel like we get very far in the process because we're, we're helping to lay the foundation for a family that's really gonna value communication for their child and know like what to expect and start to empower them to have those informed conversations um, as their child journeys you know, with other providers. Right. And I think you made a good point there. And, and this is something I will say to families too, you know, when, when we're working with little ones, we just want them to talk, you know, is usually what we hear from parents. We just want them to talk, but as they near school age, talking isn't just about saying the words, it's using some form of communication, whether it be talking or a picture board or a device or sign language to demonstrate knowledge, to show their cognitive abilities. You know, that that access to communication is what helps them develop those social skills. So just like that little boy you were talking about, because he was afforded that opportunity for communication through a means that he could access, he then was able to develop all those other areas and, and show what he knew, you know, and what he could do. Um, That's just wonderful. And another, another case for why AAC should be introduced as, as soon as it can, as soon as we can, you know, get the family on board and get, get something in the hands of the child and the family to use. So 
That's super yeah. sweet. I, lo- I love hearing about other kiddos. You know, he proudly <laughs> showed up with his communication device and then the other kiddos want to be a part of it. I just love that yeah. about children. <laughs> The acceptance and the, you know, the, the wanting to be a part of what the other children are doing. That just really warms my heart as an SLP. Yeah. Love that. Pre, yeah. I think pre-K is a great, great grounds, great training grounds for that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I have one more kind of specific question and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap things up, but I've already admitted that I, I didn't learn much about AAC in prior years. I'm on a journey now and, and very excitedly learning more and more as I communicate more, more with you and, and take courses and, and start implementing some of, you know, the use of AAC more with the families I serve. But I, um, I don't want to um, introduce an AAC device that I don't feel is robust enough to possibly carry this child for the long term should they need it. But like you said, I don't have a crystal ball to know if they're going to need it for the long term. For example, like, you know, do I introduce the GoTalk 9, which is a dedicated device? You push the button, it says the word for the child. Or do I, you know, so I'm, I'm scared to like, to, to use something with a kiddo worried that it's going to be wrong. So robust AAC is actually a specific definition. Robust AAC is AAC that allows individuals to have access to core words um, as a primary part of the structure. It has access to fringe words and can be customized to meet their really specific needs. So robust is actually, you know, we ultimately want kids to have a robust system because when kids are developing language, we don't have a checklist. We're like, yep, they're halfway through the checklist. They've had these, you know, 50 words or 100 words. Kids develop language. It's very self-selected. It's really, it's influenced by their environment and what's modeled to them in their environment. So I think that there is a place for things like the Go Talk, and there's a place for things like, um, you know, a simple core board or a topic board. But I think that what we need to consider is what, how is this child going to gain, how are they going to be able to expand their language um, when they run out of words? Like, how is, how is this system, whatever that they're using, going to allow them to grow? So I think of something like the Go Talk 9 as a way to give, to introduce families and kids to the idea that um, I can have a, you know, I can use a tool that can that'll have voice output and it gives that auditory feedback. And a lot of times it gets tactile input because you can touch it and feel it. So it has a role in sort of helping kids and and families understand the power of a voice output, but that's not a long-term solution at all (laughs) for anything. So I feel like that is a, it's an exploratory tool. Um, But as, as we're moving forward with kids, you know, um, there's a, there's a gal out of, Australia, Jane Farrell. She's um, SLP educator, and she is really focuses on AAC and literacy. And she has this great blog post called "What Is Beginning AAC." And she essentially says, "There's not really when you see an app that's advertised as beginning AAC, it's probably not very. It's it's probably going to require a lot of work on your end to do the programming. Um, it may or may not have a symbol bank, you know, to pull from. So you might have to import a lot of pictures. Generally, the, the vocabulary is pretty limited. Like it allows you to make choices and maybe make a comment, but it doesn't really allow you to do a lot outside of that. So I think it's important that we recognize that core words have a lot of power. So we want to include a core board as part of the child's system. And we want them to be able to ask for their favorite thing. So we need to have a, you know, a fringe page so that they can, you know, ask for Elsa, <laughs> their yeah. most favorite um, character. And we need to have, um, we need to have a way to, I, the alphabet's really important. You know, even as kids are, you know, we're not doing strict literacy instruction yet, but we want to be able to point to the D to say daddy you know, because there's not room under the people to put daddy. So we're going to give that first letter Q to help them understand, like, there's a variety of ways, like that's part of the way that we communicate as well. So um, I think that we can, any, any piece of AAC equipment, it might be part of a system, but I think we really do need to step back and, and not be um, pigeonholed by that. And, and reflect upon the idea that no matter what tool we have, it doesn't have all the words. So we should have other, we, sh- we want kids we want um, their systems to include the capacity for um, ex- being expanded, but also have variety. So yeah. I don't know if that's a convoluted way of answering your question. 
Yeah. Well, my question was kind of loaded in that, you know, I, again, I was fearful. I'm, I've been fearful in the past of introducing something that I felt maybe fit them in the moment, but then worried what, what if then they have to change systems, but if I'm hearing yeah. you correctly, that's okay. You can start with something maybe that has lesser access or more, you know, a more narrowed access to vocabulary, but keep in mind, you always want to expand and you always want to offer that, that core vocabulary as soon as you can, because you don't want to limit the child's language in any way. Yeah. I think the benefit of some of those tools is that it helps create buy-in for families and even for kids. Like when they start to see the cause and effect of, oh, I push go and it says go. And then mom makes the car go. Yes. That's another layer of, of language input other than just pointing to, a, you know, a paper-based picture that helps them understand what this tool is for. Um, sometimes something like a GoTalk, families aren't intimidated by that. They're like, oh, I can do this. But when you start to talk about an iPad, they're a little more cautious. So I think that it can be a bridge. And I think the big idea is that we always want to be thinking about the future. We always want to be thinking about like, how does that integrate or Um, Or how am I going to keep this really short term and use this as a way to talk about, sometimes you can use those tools even to talk about um, the fact that it doesn't work for very much or for very long because you run out of words. So then it gives you a way to talk about what comes next. Right. To illustrate that point and then expanding. Okay. Yeah. So I think that we can find a place for those things, um, you know, some of the time, but if we have a family that's eager, I wouldn't waste my time with it. Like, I had a family not very long ago and mom was like, so I want to talk about communication-based iPad apps. Hey, you got it. (laughs) Let's move forward with that conversation. Um, And by the time that child aged out, he had Lamboards for Life on a personal device and um, was making really wonderful progress using the app, but he was, he, his communication and his like investment in communicating also increased. You know, that's also what we see is it's not just the words, but it's the communicative behaviors that happen along with that when they start to understand the power of having a voice. Yeah, right. Oh, I just love it. (laughs) Makes my heart sing when we give them the access. Yeah, the access to the words so that they can be communicators. It's just magical what you see Uh happen with some of these kiddos. It really is. Yeah. Um, And I think too, like just to kind of add on to that, we don't often see that with the nouns, the way that we see it with the core words. Like once the core words become powerful, like that's really where we start to see other sort of, um, you know, really subtle and nuanced perhaps, but those other kinds of communicative behaviors that just families recognize them, even if they can't articulate them. Right. They see the change again, because we're allowing the kiddo to, to communicate in all those different ways, not just requesting with a bank of nouns. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that kind of leads into like, we started to talk about at the beginning, but communication is taught by the communication partner. So it's really important that families are using the tools. Um, And we, we don't necessarily have to expect a response from kids in order to see a change in the way that they respond. So there's, um, there's this graphic that, (laughs) that shows that even if a child tolerates you like using their tool in front of them, like that is a level of um, acceptance of AAC. And then if the child starts to look at it when you model, that is a layer of acceptance. And if they start to lean in and really watch and maybe reach towards it, but they aren't very accurate, that is another layer of AAC learning. And you kind of, for a lot of kids, you have to go through all of these layers before they'll reach out and touch it in a meaningful way themselves. But that's a really important part of the process. So we call it aided language stimulation is sort of the the, um, the jargony term, but it's modeling. You know, that's the lay term is we model language and modeling means that we use AAC to speak our words. We're not asking for them to imitate them at all. We're just showing them how we're we're using the, we're using AAC to take our turn um, in an interaction so that they can learn how to do it. Right. And this goes back to that whole, we're introducing a whole, a whole new way to communicate. So it, it may take a lot of modeling. Um, and I think that's important. You know, the points you made about those baby steps, some children really maybe need to go through all those steps before they are going to become active participants in, in accessing that core word board or that device. So yeah. awesome. it really does create such um I think it really can improve the quality of interactions with families though, because they have all of these words. They're like, oh, what words am I going to use today? And you can just explore and say different things. And 
it creates a pause and often slows down interactions, which a lot of kids benefit from in terms of processing. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It adds other elements of value. Yeah. Another added bonus. Love it. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So it, kind of wrapping up, um, you mentioned earlier that um, Angelman syndrome has some good training. So if there's some people out there that are interested in learning more about AAC um, for themselves or, you know, as a family, if they feel like their child might benefit from AAC and they maybe want to, you know, take some courses, what, what would you suggest? Okay. Um, the Angelman syndrome foundation is a family organization. So their communication training series consists of 40 couple webinars. Um, they're very good. So I would highly recommend those. Um, they are especially geared towards families. Um, the talking with tech podcast is geared towards SLPs. Um, and that is, you know, it's a podcast on AAC. <laughs> Chris mm-hmm. Bougay and Rachel Madel are the hosts of that one. Um, Practical AAC is a blog and practical, the AC is spelled AAC and practical AAC is a blog that is just a wealth of information. So Carol Zangari um, hosts that blog and it is extensive. It's a bit of a rabbit hole you can get lost in, but if you're looking for information, you can probably find something there. Project Core is a project out of the University of North Carolina and um, they, it's the project director was Karen Erickson, and she is just absolutely um, amazing and inspiring. There, so Project Core has a series of professional development modules, and these are really accessible. They're, most of them are less than 25 minutes, um, and they cover a variety of topics on um, communication, language, and literacy with AAC. Um, so I think those would be my top picks. And then let me, let me just like scroll through my brain for a moment. Sure, sure. Um, there's so many things that come to, I'm going to get off of here and be like, oh, I should have said that one. <laughs> we can come back on anytime. <laughs> um, and then if you're looking at vendor websites, like Assistiveware makes Prolo-Podigo app and they have wonderful, um, wonderful blogs that just touch on so many important elements of AAC. Um, Avaz, A-V-A-Z, is another app that has really wonderful, like short little articles about a, on a variety of topics related to AAC. And then if you go onto YouTube, Amanda Hartman, um, who, who works for Assistiveware, she has, she's out of Australia. She has great examples of how to incorporate AAC in everyday life. So I would highly recommend her videos. Um, and maybe I'll stop there. <laughs> Okay. Where you can put the show notes. Okay. Thank you. That's awesome. That was a good, a good list to get everyone started if they're interested in learning. Oh, and one more. Um, this is not just strictly AAC related, but Loma L O M A H is a podcast as well. And, um, it is hosted by a mom who has a daughter with a disability and she is just sort of figuring things out and she has conversations with folks who can give her information and she records those. So a couple of really good ones. There's an AAC episode with Rachel Langley. There are two episodes with Erin Sheldon who is an AAC um, literacy special ed expert um, who also has a daughter with Angelman syndrome. And then currently there's a literacy podcast for literacy and AAC that is, um, that's coming out right now that's also really fantastic so far. Awesome. Good. Thank you for all that. Um, So Tabby, if any of our listeners want to reach out to you personally, are they able to do that? Do you have contact information that you're willing to Um, share? Sure. My email is, um, I will spell it. It is Tabby, T-A-B-I at uh, communicationactualized.com and actualized is A-A-C. So communication (laughs) (laughs) A-A-C-tualized. dot com. Got it. And I'll, um, I'll include that if, if it's okay with you, include your email address in the bio of the podcast as well. So if any, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay. Thank you. Any specific questions for you? Yeah. And I also have a Facebook page. Um, awesome. A professional Facebook page. I think it's tabby CCC SLP or something. (laughs) You can probably find me. (laughs) Okay. So I'll link that one too. Thank you though. I'll find you. I think we're friends. So I think, I'll think I'll find it easily, but Thank you so much for sharing, again, your wisdom and your knowledge about AAC. Um, I'm so thankful that our paths crossed a few years ago. Me too. And um, I, like I said, I, I have learned already so much from you and I continue to learn from you. And I'm just so appreciative of, of 
all that you have to share. And, um, and it's, it's definitely helped me professionally to grow. And, and I look forward to how much more I will grow um, from just these conversations with you and the late night texts and the, <laughs> the working a lot. Well, I, really, <laughs> I appreciate the opportunity to share. It is definitely, you know, <laughs> um, it's definitely my passion and, you know, such a labor of love for me to, yeah, to oh, yeah. so no. I appreciate the opportunity to share have these conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, okay. So thank you all for joining us today. Um, just a reminder, you can find Milestones and Miracles on Facebook. We're also on Instagram at Milestones Miracles and on Twitter at Milestones M. And we love to hear from our listeners. If there are any topics um, that you would like for us to have a podcast on or any speakers or anyone that you feel like we should be interviewing, um, please email us milestonesandmiracles at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media and we will gladly take your suggestions and try to get those podcasts out there for you to learn from and listen to. So thank you again for joining us and we look forward to next time. Thanks, Tabby. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.